As we dig further into Mark's gospel this morning, I think it's wise to do a little bit of housekeeping um, here to keep a, a firm grasp on exactly what, uh, what we're seeing, what we're witnessing in the gospel account. There's a, a few literary aspects and uh, some, some complexities in the timeline of events and, and other things that Mark is doing here um, that I think are worth exploring for just a moment. So in lieu of a pithy, creative, introductory story that I probably couldn't have come up with anyways... We're going to uh, do a little bit of study that I hope will spurn you on uh, to deeper study on your own, t- stuff that we don't have time for here today. But I want us to look back at, at last week's text. You don't have to flip there. Um, if you were here, especially, you heard it preached very well by Pastor Matt. Um, but in Mark chapter 11, we'll see what's called a Mark sandwich. And I just taught this in, our, in my parables class. I said that's not a very tasty first century sandwich. It's a, it's a literary device that Mark uses. Um, the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree that we saw last week um, is, uh, is interrupted by another story. So we have uh, Jesus cursing the fig tree, starting in verse 12, and then we have him cleansing the temple, and then we have the story of the fig tree completed, starting in verse 20. So there's something, there's an interruption there. Mark starts the fig tree story, he jumps to the temple clearing, and then immediately picks back up with, with the fig tree and finishes it. And Mark is a good writer, and the Holy Spirit is moving him along, and so we don't want, we don't even, we don't even really notice when things like this happen, because the story, the flows very well. But this is Mark's way of doing some really cool stuff. He's, number one, he's packing a lot of material into a short space. By placing stories with similar meaning and purpose close together, he can accomplish a lot more. And then secondly, he's using the story itself, the movement, um, to explain the meaning of the text. You'll notice Mark doesn't just narrate the whole thing for us. He's not constantly interpreting for us. He interprets very little, actually. His, his gospel is not a didactic effort. It's not him trying to teach you something. It's him trying to show you something. It's just a good story, like a, like a good movie. The motions speak the truth as, just like the words do. Now, the term for this, what, what Mark has done here, where he interrupts a story and then, and then book, he bookends a story with another story, beginning and end, is a term that was chosen by men and women a lot smarter than me, and uh, I'll try and explain to you what they mean by this. It's called chiastic structure. And chiastic is uh, it's a reference to the Greek letter chi, so the New Testament's written in Greek. The Greek letter chi, even though it doesn't sound like it, is, is our X. It's actually where, where we get our, our form of the X from. Um, and like on a treasure map, they, they, Mark uses these, these, chi, these chiastic structures like an X to, to mark the spot for you. The meaning in, in a text like this, in chiastic structure, is found in the middle. So you see where an X comes together, the point in the middle, that's where our meaning is. It's a clue for us as readers when we see this thing, when we see a story interrupted by another story and then finished, to look for the meaning, the commonality right in the middle. We can actually look at this back. We go back to the story of Jairus' daughter in chapter 5. This is actually the first sermon that I ever heard Matt preach was on chapter 5. Uh, and it's a perfect example of this, of this chiastic structure that we talk about, the, the X structure, where the meaning is found in the middle. Jesus begins, or, or Mark begins, the, the story of Jairus but as Jairus seeks out Jesus uh, to heal his daughter. And on the way to healing Jairus' daughter, the story is interrupted by a woman uh, who, who has a disease and she wants to be healed. And we're introduced to this character. Uh, she's seeking Jesus for healing. 
And then after Jesus deals with that situation, the woman is healed. It continues to Jairus' daughter. That escalates. It gets kind of dramatic, and, and, and Jesus actually raises a girl from the dead. But there's, there's some things here that we need to look at. So, so both characters in the story, Jairus and, and this woman, um, they, they seek the same purpose. They believe that Jesus can save them, that, that, that he can heal them. And they come to Jesus, though, for quite opposite circumstances, and this is where we see the chiastic structure at its best. We see on one side of, of the X, one is, uh, is powerful. We have Jairus. He's a, he's a leader. Um, he's, he's a religious leader, a religious authority. He has um, power and authority, probably money. And we see one is lowly, a, a, a lowly woman who has no family that we know of. She's, she's uh, habitually unclean because of her disease and, and so can't really associate with the rest of society. One is a man, one is a woman, and, and in that society, um, there's uh, very, different, very different characters. There's a sick 12-year-old, his daughter who's 12 years old, is, is nearing the end of her life, and, and this woman has um, been sick for 12 years. There's all these commonalities. Jesus heals both miraculously, and the meaning, the commonality there, the purpose of the whole tale is found right in the middle. Jesus' words to the woman, your faith has made you well, go in peace. And that's how Mark makes a Mark sandwich. He puts the meaning in the middle. Even big picture, Mark's whole gospel, and this is, this is important for us today, Mark's whole gospel is structured in this way, where the meaning is found in the middle. There's a purpose on one side, a purpose on the other, and Mark interprets it for us and places the, the core of his argument right in the middle. The first half of the gospel of Mark, Mark's intent is to show us that the healings, the, the authoritative teaching, the miracles, they all point to the indisputable fact that Jesus is Messiah, that he's the Christ. And then the second half of the gospel, going from, from the middle, points us to the path that the Messiah must take to accomplish his salvific work, that he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be tortured, he's going to be killed. But right in the middle, right in the middle, almost exactly in the middle, just even by words, Mark eight twenty nine. You don't have to flip there. I'll read it for you. And Jesus asked Peter, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And here we have Mark's thesis, if you will. It's right under the X, right in the middle. Jesus is God. And, and Mark is asking with his whole story, he's looking at one question. He's, he's saying one thing, that Jesus is God, and he wants us to believe this news and to be changed by it. So now, while, while our text today is not a chiastic text, it's not structured the exact same way as these, it's important to understand that leading up to this and being on the other, the other side of the X where we are after Peter's confession, there's a shift in the text, there's a shift in the way Mark tells the story. The time is compressed. We have the whole last half of, the whole last half of Mark is just one week of Jesus' life. It's important to understand that, that even though we preach, when we preach on Sundays, when Matt preaches, that we're looking at individual texts. They're not standalone pieces, though, that there's unity and flow and, and purpose in where the stories are placed and how the story comes to us. What comes before what we're reading is, is, and what comes after is just as important as what we are reading. God's word is remarkably and miraculously unified. 
So today we, we, look at, we look at the last five verses of chapter 11 and the first 12 of chapter 12. And, and we've talked about, I've talked about chapter breaks before. Uh, they're an insertion. That's not original. But they help us to, to break this up into stuff that we can understand, into chunks. And, uh, but there's a break here at the end of 11 and going in to 12. And uh, I, don't, I don't want us the illusion that, that these stories are separated to fool us, and it's not going to. We're not going to be fooled by it. Mark is telling us this story masterfully, and we don't want a, something like a chapter break to interrupt that. This is all one section, the end of 11 and the beginning of 12. So we find ourselves at the end of 11, on the other side of the X, the, the chiasma that we talked about, and we can see the shift that Jesus has made in his ministry. There's a few things I want to point out, just, just in review. We've seen Jesus recently predict his own death as many as three times, maybe four, depending on, on how you read it. He was transfigured on the mountain before Peter, James, and John. That's a, that's a big event. We witnessed uh, Jesus triumphantly enter into Jerusalem, publicly announcing his Messiahship. I got the joy of preaching that text a few weeks ago. And, and last week, we, we saw him cleanse the temple. They're all very outrageous, out public things that Jesus is doing. It's a stark contrast to what he has done prior to Peter's confession, the first half of the gospel. Jesus is out in the open. He's the new sheriff in town. His punches are, are not being pulled so much anymore. And as Jesus proves and proclaims his true identity in the last week of his ministry, it is his authority and Messiah as Messiah that leads inexorably to the crescendo of his work on the cross. Jesus has not made any friends along this way either, especially not among the ruling parties. And we looked at this last week again. Up to this point, he hasn't made any friends because he challenges their entire system. They've, they've built for themselves this system to remain powerful and prominent and prosperous. And Jesus intends to bring that crashing down. That's where we pick up today at a confrontation. And through this confrontation, in the last part of 11, and a parable, that Jesus tells in response to it. We're going to see that Jesus does not intend to share authority with anyone. Not on earth and not in our hearts. He will reign supreme in all things and those who oppose him will be cast out. So let's look at our text. The first section I want to look at is, is 11, verses 27 and 28. Where it says, they came again into Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave this authority to them? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus being approached by chief priests and scribes is, is not an unfamiliar scene for us. So in, so far in Mark, we've, we've had no shortage of occasions where members of the Religious authorities seek, out, seek Jesus out to test him and trap him or otherwise harass the Savior, who they don't believe him to be. They go so far as to, in another example in, in, in our text, to prod the disciples over simple things like washing of, of hands, like a hand-washing ritual before meals. Nitpicky. They even try to use the healing of a, a poor man with a withered shriveled hand done on the Sabbath to, to as bait to accuse Jesus and, and to discredit him. It's a special kind of, of hard-heartedness, a special kind of evil. 
These same spiteful men who wish to accuse Jesus as uh, are the, they're the same ones running a racket in the temple courtyard that we saw last week in Pastor Matt's sermon. They're making money hand over fist on the backs of those who come to worship during the Holy Week. And here they come again. But, but this time, they don't, they don't have schemes like they did last time. They only come to confront the wayward, backwoods, pseudo-rabbi from the wrong side of the tracks. On the stunt he's pulled by clearing the money changers out of the temple court, he's messing with business, y'all. And so the priests come questioning Jesus about his authority. Now, we know the end of the story, so we know how crazy this is, but let's just look at it. When they ask whose authority, it's, it's more rhetorical. They come to Jesus asking about his authority. They're asking who gave Jesus permission to clear the temple, but... The answer is, who, who would give permission to do that? It's them. They, and they did no such thing. They're the ones in charge of the temple, and they're telling Jesus through this question, kind of a roundabout way of saying, we didn't say this was okay, man. So who do you think you are? They want Jesus. What they want in this moment from, from Jesus, and they, they know he doesn't have, they want Jesus' credentials. Like, what school did you go to? You know, who are you friends with? They want Jesus' qualifications. They want to know what qualifies Jesus to be an authority figure in their clubhouse. After all, they're the ones with the right background and, and the right connections, the right clothes, the hair, with all the right things to say. But they ask what turns out to be a pretty stupid question of God. Who's, whose authority did this? Did you do this by? They question the authority of God himself while standing along the walls of God's house Speaking to God in the flesh. The crazy part of all this, though, is that they have seen and they have heard what Jesus is able to do. There's, there's no mystery regarding who sent Jesus and where his authority comes from. They just simply refuse to believe. They're not ignorant. They just don't believe. Jesus, Jesus walks on water. He gives sight to the blind. He feeds thousands with one basket of bread and fish. So the hardness of these men's hearts is astounding. We can see that the religious authorities' intent against Jesus is more than just passive unbelief. It's malevolence. Active persecution, attempting to steer people away from Jesus, despite his very clear and legitimate claim to be the Messiah. I want us to see that Jesus is patient with these guys, though. He's very patient with them. But Jesus, all he does is is question their question. And when Jesus does that, you should pay attention because he's about to get somebody. He's about to get you. When Jesus answers your question with a question, it's coming. Jesus asks a simple question in response to theirs. And notice what Jesus is saying. Let's just read this together. He says, I will ask you one question. This is verse 29. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's the question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And again, he says, answer me. Like daring them. I double dare you to answer me. He's asking if John's ministry was real. Was he really preaching truth and and sent by God? Or was he just some crazy guy in the desert eating weird food and dunking people underwater? Also wearing camel's hair. We know the answer. John was the one foretold who who would prepare the way of the Messiah. 
he was sent from God, and many people believed him, and those same people believed Jesus. There's genius to this question, and it, and it goes further. The answer is apparent, and it also answers, not only is the answer apparent, but it also answers the question that the leaders have just asked Jesus. The answer to whose authority is God's authority. John the Baptist was also an outsider. He, he didn't really fit the bill. Like Jesus, he, he circumvented the scribes, the authority of the scribes and elders in his ministry. He didn't seek their approval because he had God's approval and he knew that these guys were corrupt. And John, like Jesus, was also confronted and disbelieved and rejected by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, even though, like Jesus, he was almost unanimously accepted by the people. By asking this one question, Jesus is forcing the leaders to confront in themselves an important reality, that they have no regard for the facts that Jesus' ministry and John's too point to Jesus as the Messiah. Folks, the, the grace that we see Christ extending to these men is, is amazing. I just, I just want to look at this for a second. Jesus' question is giving them a chance. He could have just rebuked them outright, and the people would have probably supported him. Jesus is giving these guys an opportunity to see what they've done to John and what they're now doing to him, to see what they've done, to see their sin, and to repent of it, to admit their fault and turn from their sin. That is what Christ is extending to these guys in this question. He knows that if they have the fortitude to answer the question honestly, what they really believe, and we'll look at that, we'll dive into that. If they have the, the fortitude to answer their own question honestly, to, to own their own hypocrisy and to come clean, then they have room in their hearts for repentance. Church, won't you hear this today? Christ is being patient with you. He desires your repentance the same way he desired the repentance of these men who confronted him on these days on the steps of his house. They're in his house questioning his authority, and he's patient with them. Christ does not desire that you should perish. He does not desire that you should be led astray. His one desire for you today, church, is, is to come to his feet, to lay down your burdens and be free. That is his offer to you. But as we'll see in the text, I, I beg you and Christ does too to do this now, in this moment. Because we will see what happens next to those whose hearts harden to the grace of God. After Jesus' question about John and his ministry, the leaders, the religious authorities, they quickly form what I'm calling an unholy huddle to brainstorm Jesus' question. They realize they are, uh, they're presented with two options. But neither of them is particularly good for their public image, so Jesus really put them in a pickle here. If they, admit to, if they admit that John's baptism, John the Baptist's work, his ministry, his baptism, was a true ministry of God, if they admit that, they will condemn themselves publicly because they neither recognized nor supported John the Baptist. Quite the opposite. They, they sent ones from their own group to arrest John, and, and in the end, they gave approval to his arrest and eventual killing. They realized that they can't at this point admit John was a prophet because it's damning to them 
and their whole social structure that is predicated on their being holier than everyone else. It'll ruin them. On the other hand, if if they deny that John's ministry was of God, as they've already done by passivity and, and obstruction, then they fear the wrath of the people. See, they need the crowds on their side if they're going to get rid of this hooligan that they're standing here in front of. They're going to get rid of Jesus. If they're going to get him out of the picture and get things back to normal, they need the crowds. But in the end, we see their answer to the question is they chicken out. They choose door number three. It was actually a lie. What do they say to Jesus? They say, we don't know. They know. Despite the opportunity that Jesus gives the men, they have no repentance in their hearts. They're as hard-hearted as the stones of the courtyard that they are standing in. There is no remorse, no conviction, no hint of humility. And Jesus knows that they have no interest in hearing the answer to the question that they asked in the first place. So Jesus puts a, a, a metaphorical nail in their metaphorical coffin with one sentence. 33b says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus declares to these men that he will not make himself known to them. And this is not because Jesus is not willing, actually. It's not spite that stops Jesus here. I'm just telling them anyways. It's grace. The more Jesus reveals of himself to the hard-hearted, and the more they resist, so they heap condemnation on themselves. The authorities, are, they're dead set against Jesus. They've, they've decided already that if this is what the Christ is going to be like, then this whole Messiah business is for the birds. They don't want to give up what they think that they've earned, position, power, authority. Church, this is a reminder to us, a call to examine ourselves and a call to examine one another that this type of, what we see in the text from the religious authorities, this type of hard-hearted, obstinate mindset, does not sh- it doesn't show up overnight. It creeps in as we reclaim territory in our hearts that was formerly the Lord's, or, or perhaps it, it even happens when we seal off a part of our lives and refuse to let the Lord change us or mold us or sanctify us. We hold a piece of ourselves hostage. Most importantly, though, the longer we allow our hearts or pieces of our hearts to remain hard to the Lord, the longer we resist Jesus' grace, the harder that ground is to recover. This is the path to falling away, y'all. We need to take it seriously. Matt spoke last week on the numerous moral failures that we've seen in our denomination in recent months, I was speaking with Ricky Bridges this morning, and he was kind of filling me in on another one that I didn't even know about. And this is the culprit right here, the hard heart that resists Jesus' authority that does not daily surrender. So instead of answering directly the question of on whose authority do you do this, Jesus does something a little bit different, and this gives us insight. And this is the beginning of chapter 12. It's directly connected to our story. He tells a parable. You have chapter headings, it's called the parable of the tenant. And the parable of of the tenants, plural. The hard truth about Jesus' parables, this is a little introduction to parables. If you were in my class, you would know this already, just a plug. (laughs) Some people know. 
The hard truth about Jesus' parables is that for those who desire to hear what Jesus said, to understand and, and to follow the truths, uh, they were enlightening and, and satisfying if you wanted them. They were filled with hope and instruction that softened your heart further. But to those who listened with contempt, they could only be one response, hardening. And that is Jesus' purpose here, to separate the wheat from the chaff with a simple story. So Jesus tells the story of of a vineyard. I won't read it for you again. I'll summarize it. The man spent a great deal of time and money to get up and going. And and since he's a man about business, he hires some skilled folks to oversee the place while he goes away, fully expecting them to make this place profitable. This is not uncommon in his day. It's not even really uncommon in our day. We we could compare it to a a long-term investment strategy. And we see this here in in verse 2 of chapter 12. At the appropriate time when the vineyard would have been making its first profit, the owner sends a messenger to collect his first share of the goods. But something goes awry. The trusted, those trusted with the owner's resources, have, they've made an exchange. They've changed their minds. They've decided that the authority of this far-off owner is not threat enough for them, so they'll just keep the vineyard for themselves. So they send the servant from the owner. They send him packing with a, with a good beating. But the owner, having invested time and effort, he sends another servant who they promptly beat and send away, and then another whom they kill, and the scriptures tell us so on with, with many others. Eventually, the owner realizes that sending a servant won't cut it. He needs to send someone with authority, someone these wayward tenants will respect. The clear choice is his beloved son. Don't miss that. But as the sun tops the hill and the tenants realize who is upon them, they don't fear or tremble or flee. They scheme and they decide that perhaps if they kill the son, then the heir of the owner, then maybe they will finally get through to the owner. We're in control now, not you. So they kill the son and they throw him out. And far from being the end of the story, though, Jesus asks a rhetorical question. What do you think the owner will do? This is obvious, and in the other gospel accounts, actually the crowd participates at this point, and they kind of shout back at him. The answer is obvious. He's, he's going to bring the swift hammer of justice to bear on these thieves and murderers. This was a terrible plan. I don't know how they thought it would end. Not only will they not have these tenants, have the wages that they might have attained had they honored the deal with the owner, they will be destroyed and everything they have will be given to new and better tenants. At this point, we need to understand how the religious authorities, though, that the people that are with Jesus, not just in the story, but listening to Jesus tell this, how they're understanding this story, this parable. Jesus' meaning, it may be slightly veiled to us, but to the audience listening, it would have been crystal clear. Jesus had told a parable that is both culturally and scripturally relevant for his day. Let's break it down quickly. So when Jesus starts with a man planted a vineyard, the people of Israel would have perked up. This is familiar imagery, important imagery for them. The vineyard and even some kind, some cases just a grapevine, it was an image that Israel associated itself with in Jesus' day. Listen to Isaiah 5-7. This is the verse why... This verse is is why they would immediately associate the vineyard 
as representing Israel in the parable. Isaiah 5, 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. This hint is the key to the whole allegory. And, and once we know that the vineyard represents Israel, the rest is fairly simple. If the vineyard is the land of Israel, then the tenants are the people of Israel. And maybe more specifically, the rulers of Israel, but either way, the people. The owner is the Lord. The servants of, that the owners send represents the prophets and the messengers of God that through the ages have borne unheeded warnings to God's people to repent when they have strayed. The owner's son, the beloved son, is clearly Jesus. But if there was any doubt, Mark makes sure to include the word beloved son as the name of the heir. This phrase, beloved son, is, appears only two other times in Mark, referring directly to Jesus at the baptism of Jesus, when the Lord's voice is heard saying, this is my beloved son, <clears throat> listen to him. And again on the mountain, where Jesus was transfigured, we hear the, the voice of the Lord declare, Jesus is his beloved son. Now the killing of the heir and the casting him out, that's it's still a little bit of a mystery to the hearers of, with Jesus this day when he first told the parable for he was not yet, he hadn't yet suffered and died at the hands of the fellows who stood in front of him. However, the chief priests and scribes do not miss the part where the first tenants of the vineyard are destroyed and replaced with new workers. That part they got. Jesus' claim here was loud and clear. He's saying, you have not kept the deal, Israel. The covenant I made with your forefathers is fulfilled in me, but the blessings will pass from you, you hard-hearted generation. Like the fig tree from last week, you have the appearance of life, but no fruit. Now the key here is that the religious authorities do not have an intellectual problem. And it's probably not the problem of anybody in this room either. It's not an intellectual problem. The problem we have with Jesus is not confusion. We look at verse 12. It says, And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. We see they perceived Jesus' meaning in the parable. And it frustrated them. The chief priests and elders don't have a problem because they missed Bible class in college. No, it's precisely because they know their Bibles that they're able to understand the meaning here from Jesus. And this knowledge condemns them. They know full and well who Jesus is. Just as the tenants in the parable killed the heir, the religious men don't seek to kill Jesus because they didn't recognize who he was. They killed him precisely because of who he was. The Messiah who is coming to take away their authority and replace them with himself. Jesus has come to claim a throne that is rightfully his, and he will not share authority or glory or power with anyone. This parable is, is a parable of judgment. It's judgment on all the hard-hearted and self-righteous of Israel. And it's the same for us today. It is Jesus telling them that because of their persistence in trusting in their own righteousness, they are rejected by God and have no part in his kingdom. This showdown between Jesus and, and the chief priests and the elders 
It's an object lesson to all observing. Each, each party represents a kingdom. So the religious rulers that Jesus is speaking with, they represent the kingdom and the authority of man. And Jesus, he represents the kingdom and authority of God. But both cannot exist in the age to come. Just like the vineyard owner comes and destroys the wayward tenants, Jesus has made clear who wins in the end, the owner, the Lord. And just like the owner of the vineyard, the Lord will give the vineyard to others. Jesus is standing here in our text today condemning Israel based on his own authority because he is God. And because there is not a person standing with Jesus on this day or here with us today that has any footing before God based on their own merit or effort, even Israel, even Israel, who had the law and the prophets to teach them to, that, that they, to obey, they could not obey. And they stand condemned before Jesus. Jesus alone, Jesus alone himself, holds the keys to eternal life in the blood that he will shed. And the others that will inherit the vineyard are all those who stand redeemed by that blood, by faith, at the foot of the cross of Christ. Jesus ends his parable with a quotation of Scripture from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, which are, I'll just point out, that the two verses just before Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You'll recognize that from the triumphal entry. Jesus, I think, quotes it here to give a plum to those present who have believed and announced his lordship, but also to complete the parable, to shed a final interpretive light on its meaning. He says in the scriptures, the stone that build, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And when building an ancient structure, like the temple, the most important stones were always laid as the, they were, they were the ones as the foundation. And among those stones, the foundation stones, was the most important of all the stones, the one laid at the corner of the foundation. It does twice the job of the others at supporting two walls at once. It's also visible. It wanted to look good. So the builders would pick through the stones to find the perfect one. They would look at its various aspects and, and facets to find the right one. It needed to be perfectly square and strong to do its job. But see, friends, the, the builders are the ones Jesus is sparring with in our text the chief priests and the Levites and the scribes, in a spiritual sense. They were responsible for the spiritual well-being of Israel, not just the physical temple, but the spiritual temple. But as they built their spiritual temple, they did not place the Lord as the cornerstone, but themselves, their authority. And now standing face to face with the very one who this temple was built to house, Jesus, they reject the true cornerstone. With their hearts hardened by sin, they look mercy in the face and they scoff. What does it mean to reject Jesus? We see it here, but I think we can look at it this way. So imagine a friend gives you a gift. You take the package, you thank them, and, and you're on your way. When you get home, you place the package on a shelf where it stays, tucked away, unopened. Perhaps in another scenario, you bring it home, you open it. It's a book. It's a, it's a book about growing your own produce. We'll stick with our gardening theme. You look it over, you find a good spot on your bookshelf, you file it away. 
book about gardening. Maybe in a third outcome, you, you get home, open the package, pull out the book, you read it, but you decide it's some hippie garbage and you throw it away. Or one final scenario. Let's say you read the book and find it intriguing. You, you even thank your friend the next time you see him. It's a great book. It's really interesting. Uh, uh, growing my own produce seems like a really good idea. You log the info away in your brain, but days and weeks and months pass and you haven't grown anything. You've taken no steps. Make no mistakes, friends. Every single one of these is rejecting the gift the friend gave you. Anything but total surrender to Jesus' authority and obedience to his word is a rejection of Jesus. You must daily take up your cross, die to yourself, and live to Christ. Anything short of that is rejection. And Jesus has made himself on our behalf the cornerstone that we can found our lives upon, the only sure and strong footing to stand before God on the day of judgment. There is no authority in heaven or on earth that surpasses Jesus's, and there is no other way by which we can be saved. Christ lays himself down for you, a cornerstone on which you can plant yourself firmly, immovable, and righteous before the Lord. He's here. Jesus is here in our text. Jesus is here and his grace is free for the taking. And I'll ask you, have you planted yourself upon him? God has done the unthinkable in Christ. Laying a foundation through his own blood. That if we repent of sin, turn from sin and trust in Christ's authority alone, to declare us righteous, that we will be saved. All because of his great love, not, not your merit. We rejected him. We are the Pharisees. We are the religious leaders in this text. We rejected him, and he died for us. And as he quotes in Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray together. God, we pray you give us eyes to see and ears to hear that the word of God would enlighten us. That your word, spoken and written for us, would sever from us all weights, all hindrances. God, that we would release control of the little bit of authority that we hold, whether it's job decisions, life decisions, whether it's habits, especially if it's sins, God, would you root it out in us? Would you bring it forth? Would you crush it under your heel as you have promised to do, God? Would you free us from the, the guilt and the death of our own authority and let us lean wholly on your authority? Lord, I pray for anyone here today who has heard this and realizes that they are not under your authority but their own, and are bound for damnation because of it, that you would bring them to repentance, Lord, that they would repent and trust in Christ alone, the cornerstone of our faith, the sure footing, the sure foundation. Apart from him, there is no hope. And God, we pray and we ask expectingly, knowing that you will make us holy because you have promised that you would do so in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.